Open your Bibles to 1 John, so that's not uh, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that John, it's in the back of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Um, You'll hear me today refer to John's gospel, uh, which is uh, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and when I say that, I'm referring to that book of the Bible, you'll hear me refer to John's epistle or letter and when I say that, I'm referring to 1 John. I'll try to make it clear, but sometimes it just doesn't come out that way. So um, I've, I've thought some things before. This is becoming a weekly special effect that we have added for your benefit. Um, but it's good because we are talking about the fact that God is light. And uh, so we just want to demonstrate that for you as we begin to <laughs> preach. We'll have to get that handled because I only have so many jokes that can come along with that. <laughs> oh, goodness, goodness. John is writing um, a letter, a pastoral letter. It's not necessarily called a pastoral epistle or a pastoral letter, but that's the burden of his heart as he's writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor uh, because there was... False doctrine, and I want to be clear, I said this last week when I say false doctrine, we're not talking about just, you know, differences of opinion. We're saying false doctrine, heresy to the degree that one who purports these doctrines is not a Christian, right? So we're not talking about Christians with a difference of opinion. We're talking about someone who is purporting doctrine that is anti-Christian, anti-to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, we'll read this morning uh, 1 John 1, 5, uh, just into chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, I grew up during the um, kind of seeker-sensitive church movement of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the message of those days, and I, I, I really don't have time to even go into the specifics of it, but the message of that those days was uh, we need to stop focusing on God first, and we need to focus on the desires, uh, the, the things that will draw people into the church. In other words, the message of God's holiness and call for his people to live according to that holiness is not very appealing. And so we need to adjust the message. This is not a, a new problem. It wasn't a new problem then. Even the apostle Paul in second uh, Corinthians uh, chapters three and four said, look, we, we, we refuse to tamper with the gospel. We refuse to try to come before you with human plausible arguments. We're just, we're just bringing the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I still contend along with John, that that's the message we need to proclaim. The problem is if, if we continue to put our needs or our, uh, I don't want to say our felt needs, there's a time when we, we take the word of God and we, uh, we converse with people in a way that addresses particular concerns that are very real that they're experiencing, we kind of refer to those as felt needs. Um, but if we put humans at the center of it, then what we must do by, by virtue of how we've brought them in is continually morph gospel teachings to, to fall in line with the human-centered ideals we've brought people in with. And that becomes a, uh, a long-term game that's not sustainable. In fact, it's why in a lot of churches or, uh, and this is an American, not only an American church problem, but it is an American church problem. 
It's why many people, even within the church, have become disenfranchised with the church. Well, I go to church and there are a whole bunch of people that profess the name of Jesus. They profess that they are Christians, little Christs. But yet their life doesn't seem to really live up to that. I mean, they're nice people. They're nice and all. Which you find a lot of that Iowa nice here. Sometimes it's the most difficult place to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we are nice people. We're kind to one another. And yet, the message of the gospel, Jesus said, turns brother against sister, father against son, mother against daughter. It turns families against each other. And our goal is not to to stir up factions and division and create family conflict. But when one person in a family follows Jesus, all of their life purposes change. All of their goals in life begin to change. And for someone that has a special close tie to someone, even in that family, still loves one another, there's friction caused by by the new priorities that are established in the heart of one who has said, Jesus is my Savior, and I must follow Him first. There were people in the early church that were denying the fact that moral, ethical behavior must change when one follows Jesus. Remember, we were talking about these uh, Gnostics who, who, would, who believed that, that the body of the Holy One could not live on this earth meaning that Jesus is God, because this earth is so contaminated with evil. Well, what also came along with that was the idea that, yes, we are Christians saved by grace, but our bodies are detached from that in the sense that we can sort of live freely however we want here, and we're saved in our souls, but the two don't necessarily unite. The two don't necessarily connect. And John is taking issue with that very specifically. Listen, 1 John 5, I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. He says, this is the message, and the emphasis is on the word is right there. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, or your translation might say, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, 
you need to understand, every one of us, that walking in the light brings open, honest fellowship with God and with his people. Walking in the light brings open, honest fellowship with God and with his people. And and what John says right out of the gates here is that God's self-revelation is this. God is holy, and I'm using the word spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y. God is holy or completely light. You might say it like this, recognizing the two spellings of the word. God is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y. God is completely holy. It sounds redundant. It is in a sense, but we need to hear it. John is saying there exists one message. This is the message that God gave and we are passing on to you. Who's the we? He's talking about the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. And you'll notice John in this section of scripture begins to talk about we, the apostles, communicating these truths to the church of Jesus Christ. And then you'll notice that, that, that John begins to associate himself with the church. He uses the word we in a different sense. But he says here, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. This is a proclamation, not a conversation. It's a declaration of truth that you and I have the privilege, indeed the responsibility of carrying to everyone we have the opportunity to in our lives. We get to carry the message, the proclamation that God is light. He is holy, holy. And by definition, there is no darkness in him at all. By very definition of being holy, there can be no darkness. By very definition of being light, it's not, an, it's not, an, uh, it's not a character trait. It's an attribute of who he is. He doesn't have light. He doesn't just carry light. He is light. He is holy. And everything flows from that. And the world needs to know this message. We cannot tailor the message to, to, try, to, uh, to try to persuade people to believe him, to accept him. Now, you might sort of question, because just two weeks ago, I said that we are to persuade. (laughs) We persuade as a courier who brings and delivers a message with an impassioned plea. We don't persuade by changing the message. We persuade by using our own lives as testimony to what God has done and what God can do by redeeming sinful man. Paul said, and Pastor Matt says, I'm at the front of the line of sinners. I'm at the front of the line. This is the first occurrence of the metaphor light in uh, 1 John. But um, actually, I read that sentence wrong. The, The first occurrence of this metaphor in light shows up in John the Gospel of John 1, verse 4. And I'm going to read these nine verses for you, but it is remarkable how much overlap there is between John 1 and 1 John 1, right? In one sense, it shouldn't catch us off guard. They're written by the same guy, but they are written 
for slightly different purposes. And he says this, in the beginning was the word. And it really starts kind of focusing in on verses four through nine, but I want to read the whole uh, thing in its context. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, so the word is now a he, he was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that was made in him, in the word was life and the life was the light of men, light. The life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light like you and I are not the light. but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Of course, speaking about Jesus, verse 14 tells us that, that the light came into the world, was made manifest among us. Light and life revealing or referring to the self-existent Life of the word, the logos dispensed at creation, where the rest of the occurrences in John relate, relate it to salvation. And the idea is that light represents the source of life. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And everything flowed after that. In John's epistle, what we're reading right now, first John Light is referring here to God. And then chapter 2, 8, 9, and 11, he's referring to Jesus with that same word. It's important to make that distinction because John is communicating to people that Jesus is in fact God embodied. So he's making the point about in the beginning of all things was light, life, the word communicated to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who has always existed, and he is the righteous one. So the point he's making is that a person can't say they have fellowship with God and walk in darkness because there's no darkness in God. There's not a thousandth of an ounce of imperfection in God. For there to be darkness, there must be an absence of light. And by definition, it's not possible with God. Pastor David Guzik says this uh, as a, as a good definition of God. Now, Anytime you try to give a good definition of something that is impossible to define completely, one sentence isn't going to cut it. So for all of you out there who are going to say like, well, that's not really complete. I, I get it. But just work with me on this. God is the only infinite, eternal, unchangeable spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. God is light. It's another way of saying that. God is like, and this is the message God gave us. This is the message God gave us and that we must carry to others. We do this all the time. We carry messages in our, in our jobs, in our families, in our communities. We carry messages all the time. The question is, do we carry and relay the message that we were given or does it morph 
like the telephone game in much of our lives at times, right? John is making it crystal clear that we need to keep the main point of the message, the main point, right? We must always start with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point. We must always start with God. And he argues that our main problem is self-centeredness. Our main problem is self-centeredness. And so we, we come to the Christian faith by looking to have our needs met. I'm not happy and God can make me happy. Therefore, I want God so that I can be happy. I'm looking for something I don't have. And I think that God can give it to me. How can Christianity help me with my problems and my needs? But to approach the, approach the fish, Christian faith in a manner like that is to cater to our main problem which is self, he says. The first answer of the gospel can always, in effect, be put this way. This is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Forget yourself and contemplate God. Forget yourself and contemplate, think on, ponder on God. And he continues, the way to be delivered from self-centeredness is to stand in the presence of God. Another pastor says when wrestling with temptation, he's actually speaking about the problem of pornography that is so rampant among men and Christian men even. He says, when tempted, what do you need to do? Go stand outside and look at the sky. Because when you stand outside and you look at the sky, you see the magnanimous Beauty and glory of God. And you are in a moment reminded that you are not him. You are in a moment reminded that you are not that big. That big of a deal compared to God. So contemplate God. Forget yourself. Contemplate God. Sometimes I have the privilege of, of talking to people about reading the Bible, right? And sometimes I'll get answers like, well, I just don't really understand the Bible. To which I might say something like, well, have you ever understood something that you haven't given yourself to? I mean, did you have your, did you grow up playing a sport? Well, yeah. Well, how'd you learn the sport? Somebody taught you the sport. You practice over and over and over, right? At first you threw and it was super awkward and you looked super awkward. Downright hilarious, in fact. Well, which foot goes first? Which? I digress. You walked through the steps, got the steps in the right order, and then you could throw your first non-accurate throw that went through the right steps, through the right motion. And then you could slowly begin to train your brain and your muscle memory that this is how it was supposed to work, even though it feels super awkward right now. I remember in high school for a time learning how to throw a football correctly. And I feel like I just want to say I knew how to throw it correctly before then, but I was, <laughs> my coach didn't think so apparently. And I remember wanting to lift my arm and get it way high and throw it out like that. And I remember him just saying, just keep it low. Just get it right past your ear and let it rip. And I was like, this is super awkward. He's like, it is right now, but you'll get it. 
and it'll become, right? I mean, there are throws where you just rear back and let her rip, but you're not comfortable reading the Word of God, maybe because you're not reading the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, God will reward your faithfulness in time, helping you learn how to fellowship with Him in reading the Word of God and in praying. You don't know how to pray? Don Whitney says, well, sometimes we don't know how to pray because we say the same old, we get bored with prayer because we say the same old things about the same old things. He's got a little book called Praying the Scriptures. We say the same old things about the same old things. No wonder we're bored with prayer. Open up your Bible, read your Bible, and pray the Word of God. You'll never run out of things to pray. And it won't be self-centered. It won't be man-centered. It'll be God-centered. And that's what we need to do. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. We need to put the Lord, we need to put God first and foremost at the center of everything, of all things. God's self-revelation is that He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, light. Holy, light, holy, holy. And there can be no darkness in Him. And we need to know this as Christians. We need to be reminded of ourselves as, as this, of this truth. But also we need to we need to bring this same message to the world. The world needs to know this message. And then in verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 2. Now, p- different uh, pastors, commentators will divide this up in different ways. Uh, and it's okay. There's a lot here. You, you could legitimately, I mean, what I'm preaching to you right now could actually be several sermons. Um, and so we're going to go 1, verse 6 through 2, chapter 2. And I hope you'll see why here in a few moments, but John refutes three false claims, and we need to refute false claims with our lips and with our lives. We need to refute false claims with our lips as well as with our lives. There needs to be a, a, a unity between the two. What we say ought to be similar to how we live. Three false claims. Number one, the denial that sin breaks fellowship with God. And we see this through six conditional statements. You'll see a denial, affirmation, denial, affirmation, denial, affirmation. Some people word those differently, but it's it's the same general idea there, right? The denial that sin breaks our fellowship with God, the denial that sin exists in our nature, and the denial that sin shows itself in our conduct. We need to deny these things, and we need to affirm what is true. Or let me rephrase, let me rephrase that. They were denying these things. We need to affirm that these things are true and that are real. And that's what John does here, right? So A, the, the, the denial that sin breaks our fellowship with God, right? Verse one, chapter one, verse six. If we say, notice the conditional, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. I just need to ask you the question. Do you say you have fellowship with God? And walk in darkness. The word walk is a metaphor for live in such a way that you embrace and obey darkness. The question isn't, do we ever, ever sin? That's not what he's getting. He's talking about a continual practice of sinning, a continual practice of of walking in that way. I remember back to high school football, playing high school football and, uh, for weeks at the beginning of the season and then every game day we just had to carry a football with us at all times we had to carry that football with us you couldn't set it down you couldn't leave it and there were penalties and 
you know, push-ups and running and all this kind of stuff if somebody got your football, right? I mean, you had to carry this thing with you, right? This is the message that we carry with us at all times. If we, similar in similar kind of fashion, if we carry the football of sin with us, choosing to guard it, choosing to protect it, and a believer comes and says, hey, 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 what is that right there, right? We used to just have fun with that, just games with it, try to knock the football out of each other's hand. I mean, you always had to be aware, same is true of our Christian living, brothers and sisters. We ought to be coming around lovingly to one another and say, hey, hey, what, what's that in your life right there? Trying to knock that out of each other's lives. Why? Because we love each other. We love each other. Do you let somebody that you love go on doing something that you know is going to be harmful to them? Not if you love them. Unless you're a coward and you care more about your own self-perception or how others perceive you than actually obeying the Lord and helping people in them. There's a way to go about it, to be sure. But we come along and we say, what is that you're carrying with you? What sin is that that you're carrying with you? What darkness is it that you're protecting? So that's the denial. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth. The affirmation in verse 7, but if... We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our main idea of the day, I said it earlier, uh, is walking in the light brings open, honest fellowship, both with God and his people. When you have open, honest fellowship with God and his people, you don't have to hide. In other words, where you can be together in smaller groups of community and you can be open and honest about your sin and about your struggles. I'm afraid that people will judge me. That's their problem. I mean, sure, the negative effects of that, if somebody handles it the wrong way, can be your problem, but not outside the providence of God. What I mean is I'd rather be judged and helped, lovingly judged, lovingly helped by those who love God and want the very best for me than to stand before the Lord, realizing, oh, it would have been much better to have been judged by everybody else than judged to be unfaithful by God because nobody came alongside to help me in that way. Would you also rather have someone who loves you come alongside of you and say, hey, this part of your life, it seems like, if I understand it right, seems to be out of kilter with what it means to walk in the light. Is there darkness you're hiding in? Is there darkness you're carrying around with you like that proverbial football we would carry on game day? And somebody wants to try to knock it out so you lose your grip on darkness and you begin to cling to the light? You say, no, I want this. It's, the rest of my life is okay. I want this sin. I want this darkness. Sin breaks our fellowship with God, and to deny it is to deny the Bible. To deny it is to deny the Bible. Religion without morality, is an illusion. Now, we can get the cart before the horse, and we can focus on morality rather than on loving and f- loving the Lord and fellowshipping with Him, living in fellowship with Him, and allowing the morality and the ethical Christ-likeness to flow from that. I mean, that's what we're called to do. But yes, it is easy to, for us to focus on performance and behavior. 
And so we have to guard against that as well. We have fellowship with one another. This is the idea of koinonia, commonness. We share things in common with one another. We are cleansed from past sin and continuous present tense cleansed from sin. In other words, the impact of Jesus's atonement, verse 2, his, his, the propitiation for our sins, the, 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 the atoning sacrifice for our sins, has an effect in saving us and in cleansing us and in uh, sanctifying us, making us more and more set apart to live by him. The second denial that, that, uh, that he mentions in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, it's the denial that sin exists in our nature. Right? So just by way of review, the denial that sin breaks fellowship with God and that sin exists in our nature. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So to think this of ourselves and to say this of ourselves is a lie. Uh, I said to the middle schoolers this week that both by nature and by choice, we choose the wrong way. By nature and by choice, we choose the wrong way. Spurgeon said it like this, our deceitful heart reveals almost satanic shrewdness in self-deception. If you say you have no sin, you have achieved a fearful success. You've put out your own eyes and perverted your own reason. You're walking around blind and dumb. Don't be deceived. But the affirmation is in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Sin is present in our lives, but it doesn't need to remain as a hindrance to our relationship with God. We are all going to sin, but we don't have to continue to walk in sin. Why? Well, we know that it's our nature, but resting in Jesus, repenting of our sin and trusting Jesus for his judicial forgiveness introduces his, uh, I'm sorry, judicial judgment in declaring us righteous now introduces God's parental judgment, parental discipline, right? The, 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 the father who continually comes along his children and says, you're mine. And now I'm going to show you the right way. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to train you in the way that is right. And this is what our relationship with the Lord uh, is like as we walk with him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just. It doesn't just say that he's faithful and he's nice. You see, God did not say, oh, because you like me and you want to follow me, I'll overlook your sin. And brothers and sisters, if we ever communicate that to friends, oh, don't worry about it, just come to church. Well, yes, come to church, but... We must worry about it because if we invite people into the fellowship of the body of Christ and we never proclaim to them their need for a savior, we will hold their hand as we walk toward the gate of hell. Could you imagine walking toward the gate of hell, standing at the gate and say, boy, it's been really nice to, to do life with you these last 15 years. I'm sorry that I told you you'd never have to worry about it. I guess I was wrong. We must worry about it. 
We need to contemplate the Lord before we look to ourselves and recognize when we do, he's holy. We're not. We need to repent of our sin and turn to him because we need a savior. He's faithful and just to forgive give because of Jesus' work. God's just, his justice, his righteousness is actually our friend. Because God is just, he is faithful and just. He sent his sin to Calvary, his son to Calvary to bear our sin, to become sin for us. Jesus never sinned, but he became sin. The great exchange. He got our sin and we got his righteousness. The third denial is that sin shows itself in our conduct. So verse 10 says, if we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. So if we say that we don't have any sin, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we, if we deny the presence of sin, we're self-deceived like the quote that Spurgeon made. We are, we've plucked out our own eyes and we've affected our reason so much to the negative that we're deaf and dumb walking around. We're self-deceived and we're denying God's word. Since sin is always present, so is the remedy. Jesus didn't just forgive us and then wash his hands of us. No. No, he became the one who who knew all kinds of sin that we would struggle with. All kinds of temptation, which is why Hebrews 4 says he's the good and and, and faithful, perfect high priest in Hebrews 4. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then I sometimes just wish we could kind of erase these paragraph breaks and these headings, but his word is not in us and, and we make him a liar. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I want to ask you a question. If someone approached you at church or in your home and said, I want to talk with you about something so that you might not sin. Do you think your initial response to that would be, oh, that, I would love that. Let's go. Who are you to say that I'm sinning? Who made you the judge over me? Do you think it might be the latter? I'm just curious. I think I might have an idea. Because I know my own heart. I want to tell you something so that you might not sin. Oh, thank you. Could you imagine if the church of Jesus Christ developed that attitude? I want to talk to you so that you might not sin. Oh, I need that. Okay, it might not be as dramatic. Okay, thanks. Let's do it. That's more real. I want to talk to you. Somebody's going to come up to me this week and be like, I want to talk to you so that you might not sin. I need to be dramatic about it. Oh, I love that. Let's get coffee. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I'm probably not going to like this, but you know what? I need it. Let's do it. Right? It's probably more realistic. I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. There's someone on your side. There's someone on your side who's gone before you, who's experienced your sin, who's paid the penalty for your sin. And and because of the joy set before him, 
He endured this cross, scorning it, shame. Someone has gone before you and he prays for you even now at the right hand of God the Father. He is your advocate. He is your, he is your forever friend who is going to love you no matter what because you are in him. And he's here to help you in this. He's here to help you walk in the light because he is light and he indwells you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He himself is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. One commentator says the word implies, uh, talking about propitiation, the word propitiation implies that Jesus has as a sin offering reconciled God and us by nothing else, but by his voluntary death as a sacrifice. Greater man has no love than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And he has by this atoning sacrifice averted God's wrath. Rather than receiving the Niagara Falls of wrath towards sin, which every one of us deserves, every one of us deserves. Well, I really don't try to. That's just kind of how it, right, because it's your nature. By nature and by choice, we're going to choose the wrong thing. And every one of our sins, from the smallest to the greatest, deserves God's Niagara Falls of wrath. But instead of that, we get God's Niagara Falls and more of mercy and grace. And all of that wrath that you deserve for lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, adultery, just stealing, the list goes on and on and on, was poured out on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is good news that we get to carry to people who need to hear the gospel not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. In other words, everyone who who will call on the name of Jesus Christ, their sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. He has paid the very real sin for them. And we get to usher them to the Lord. But we don't need to make the message creative. You see, before we get to God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's provision, well, we'll get there pretty fast, but we need to help them see first and foremost God's holiness, God's perfection. Most people are not unfamiliar with the idea that they've sinned. It's just to call it sin is the challenge. Listen to how many people in their testimonies talk about mistakes. A mistake is not a sin. Two plus two equals five. I see some kids like, that doesn't sound right. That's right, I made a mistake. I hate you and I'm angry with you, so I'm not going to share my toy. That's a sin. We do make mistakes in this life, but we sin in this life. And Jesus has come to deal with our sin. And John's message is, we can't live with these denials. We need to affirm that as we walk in the light, we have open fellowship with both God and with one another. 
Now I want to challenge you in an area. Do you have Christian friends who go to this church with you? But with whom you don't share the struggles of your life. And by struggles, I mean sin struggles. I want to challenge you to enter into a relationship of some kind with someone who you will share your sin struggle with. Brothers and sisters, the days are over us for walking around like nice people who go to church and do good to others and want to invite people to come and follow in the same life. No, we must come. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross and follow Christ. In fact, you might have come to this church for a very, very, very long time as a nice person. Nice people who don't turn to Christ for salvation will go to hell. It might not sound like it, but I say that out of love. We need Jesus. And once we have Jesus, we need to systematically work at, at filtering out or killing, mortifying the sin that we carry around with us and we protect and we guard. Don't come near this area. We need to help each other in this because we have fellowship with one another. The implications, the application for this is varied for all of us because we each wrestle with our own kinds of sin. But I want to ask you if you would pray this week, God, would you help me to see? And I would bet you really probably don't even need to pray that. You probably already know. But, Lord, help me receive where I'm harboring sin and I'm excusing it or I'm minimizing it, faking, I'm hiding, so that I can have open, honest fellowship with you and with others in the body. As we take communion, that is a wonderful prayer to pray. In fact, the psalm, psalmist prayed it in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We don't like the word wicked. See if there be any uh, not super great way in me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.